Why did Jesus die? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus die? You know, I remember when I was a kid and I heard about what happened to leading up to Jesus' death when he died on the cross. It just seemed so wrong. Has anyone ever felt that? It just seemed so wrong what happened to him. He was an innocent man, a good man, and he died. It was the ultimate betrayal of justice. And the question I asked when I first heard that as a kid is, could Jesus' death have been prevented? It seemed like a whole lot of things conspired against Jesus. One of his closest followers, Judas Iscariot, turned out to be a traitor. He led the arresting party to where Jesus was away from the crowds and he did that at night so they could arrest him in secret. Did Jesus die because there was a traitor in his midst? What would have happened if only Judas had stayed loyal? What if Jesus had been a bit clear about Judas and kicked him out of the group before he could have betrayed him? Could that have stopped this travesty of justice from happening? But it wasn't just Judas. There were other things that conspired, seemed to happen, that were unjust. What about Roman, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate? He was the one who actually passed the death sentence on Jesus, even though he could see that Jesus was innocent. He could see that the charges against Jesus were trumped up charges, but he felt the pressure to condemn him as guilty anyway. What if Pilate had just had a bit more guts to stand up and do the right thing and refuse to condemn a just man to death? Then perhaps Jesus would not have died. Actually, as you look through the account leading up to Jesus' death, there are heaps of circumstances that if had been a little bit different, might have saved Jesus from death. Maybe, maybe the crowd could have stood up for him. Maybe his disciples could have whisked, whisked him away from danger. Maybe Jesus could have just sensed that things were getting a bit tense and he could have laid low for a while. Maybe the people who arrested him could have seen his innocence. Maybe, maybe, lots of maybes. Maybe things could have turned out differently. Maybe, after all, Jesus did not have to die. But these maybes miss the point. Why? Because, you see, Jesus was not tricked into dying. Jesus was not overpowered into, having, into being uh, killed. He didn't fall into some trap. He was not outsmarted or overpowered. You see, Jesus actually chose to die. He chose to die. He planned to die. And then he made sure that he actually would die. Why on earth did he do that? Why did he choose to die? Well, the Bible tells us why. It tells us why in many parts of the Bible. And today we're going to look at just two of those passages which Linda just read out. Let's first look at our first passage. And please uh, open up your Bibles or go there on your phones, whichever form you have. But please follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some spare Bibles on that red table at the back. And there's a few there that you can borrow. Don't be afraid to go up and grab one. Good on you, Nigel. So Romans chapter 5. Verse 6, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And if you've got a, 
a book copy of the Bible, that's around about towards the end of the Bible. Romans chapter 5 from verse 6 to 9, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be, shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This passage tells us very clearly why Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus God's chosen one, why he died. Verse 6 it says, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8 it says it again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does this mean? What does it mean that we were powerless? What does it mean that we were sinners? And I guess more to the point, why was that a problem? And why did God care enough about this so that Jesus went to the point of dying to solve that problem? Firstly, what was the problem? In verse 6 it says that we were powerless. That means that we, human beings, were in some situation that we were not able to get ourselves out of by our own strength, by our own power. But what was that situation? Verse 8 tells us what it was. It was that we were sinners. But what does it mean to be a sinner? It basically means that we are people who do the wrong thing. Instead of doing what's right, doing the right thing, we do what is wrong. And a little later, we'll look at more specifically at some of the things that make up what is doing wrong. And that's an important question because not everybody agrees on what is right and what is wrong. But what we can see from this passage is that we had a problem. And that problem is sin. And the problem is we are stuck in sin. Stuck in doing the wrong thing. And we're helpless to get ourselves out of that situation. And the passage also tells us the consequences of being in this situation. Verse 9 tells us that we needed to be saved from God's wrath. In other words, we have a problem, a sin problem, and the consequences of that problem is that God is angry with us because we do the wrong thing. And that when we die, we will have to give an account of our wrongdoings to God. And it will not be pretty. God is just. He always does the right, wrong, uh, he always does the right thing. Just seeing if you're listening. He always does the right thing. And he can't turn a blind eye to sin to wrongdoing. And we even see that in politics today. When people are accused of doing the wrong thing, people want there to be justice. You can't just let people off the hook. There has to be an accounting. And so because we are helplessly stuck in our sins, we will be declared guilty. We will come under God's eternal wrath. And that means an eternity of punishment for our sins in hell. That is a big problem. In fact, I can't think of a bigger problem than that. 
and we're helpless to do anything about it. But God could do something about it. In fact, he's the only one who could do something about it. He could rescue us. He could save us. He could deliver us. But the only way he could do that is by Jesus taking the punishment that was due for us. And he did that by dying on the cross. That, my friends, is why Jesus died. It's because we were helplessly stuck in our sins, guilty of doing the wrong thing, with the threat of a future trial before God and being declared guilty, coming under God's judgment and punishment of an eternity in hell. But, but, praise God, God sent Jesus Christ, Jesus who is God's son, actually who is God himself, Jesus who has never done anything wrong, Jesus who is completely innocent, and therefore who is qualified to stand in our place and to die for us, to take the punishment for our sins instead of us having to take it. Which means at the final judgment, our sins will be covered and we will enjoy eternal life with him. Hallelujah! Are you happy about that? You sound so quiet. Who's happy about that? Just three or four of you? But why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he care enough to do that for us, for me, and for you? Because, as it says in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, not when we were good, but while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Jesus did that because he loved us. So, the reason that Jesus died, the reason why Jesus chose to die, is because we were stuck in our sin. We were powerless. We were helpless to get ourselves out of that terrible state of which there was only one possible consequence God's judgment, a verdict of guilty, and an eternity in hell. But Jesus, because he loved us so much, he died for us, taking for him on himself the punishment that was meant for us. And there's another passage of scripture that also deals with this in more detail, the other reading that Linda read out. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And the context of this is interesting. This is a letter that Paul is writing to the church in the Greek city of Corinth, which you can see where it is on that map there. Now, the church in Corinth was not exactly the model church. It was full of problems. And one of the biggest problems was that there was a lot of sin in the church. That is, many of the church members were still doing the wrong thing, still living the same immoral lives that they had lived before they had become a Christian. They knew that Jesus had died for their sins, and so they thought, well, if Jesus has died for our sins, that means we can keep on sinning. Doing whatever we like, right? Right? Good. Wrong. I'm glad you could see that. Paul sets them straight. Let's read on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is just a few pages after Romans. It's the next book. Verses 9 to 11. And do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But, but, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, those few verses are very direct. There's no beating around the bush. Paul, through the Spirit of God, writing through Paul, says that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means that people who do the wrong thing after they die will not live in paradise, in God's kingdom, with him forever. Paul is very direct about that. It's harder to be more direct than saying wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But just in case you missed it, he says it again. But in the second case, he comes up with a very specific list of sins. A specific list of wrong behaviours. And he begins this list with a very interesting statement. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And I think Paul is talking about two ways in which he can be deceived. Firstly, we can be deceived into thinking that Christians can still go on sinning, still go on doing the wrong thing, and that provided we have our life insurance of believing in Jesus, we'll be okay, and Jesus will cover, will cover over our sin. You know, in a sense that's true, but in another sense it's not true. Jesus dying for our wrongdoing, paying the price for the things we do wrong, does not mean that we can keep on doing the wrong thing. Saying a sinner's prayer is not like a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card that means you can still keep doing whatever you like. If we think it is, then Paul says, then God says, we are deceived. But I think there is another way we can also be deceived. And the way we can be deceived is having the wrong idea about what sin actually is. Having the wrong idea about what is right and the wrong idea about what is wrong. You see, straight after Paul says, do not be deceived, Paul spends the rest of verses 9 and 10 listing off a number of very specific sins. And the reason he does that is because one way we can be deceived is not having the right idea of what sin actually is. The problem is when we talk about sin generally without being specific is that it's not specific enough. And when it's not specific enough, then we make up our own ideas of what is right and what is wrong. What is right and what is wrong is then decided by the people around us. It's decided by the culture or the government or the point of time in history that we might live in. For example, if we go back all the way back to when Paul wrote this letter, if you lived in the Roman Empire in around about the year 50 AD, such as the city of Rome or the city of Corinth where these letters were sent to, most people at that time thought that there was nothing wrong with having slaves. Nothing wrong with it. If you were the 50% of the population that weren't a slave, then you would have a slave. There was also nothing wrong with sleeping around, either with the opposite or the same sex. And most men did both. There was nothing wrong if you had a baby and you didn't want it, you would just leave it out on the street, either to die or someone else who might want a spare baby could just pick it up and raise that baby as a slave. Nothing wrong with doing that. That was the norm back then. It was expected. The laws allowed it, maybe even encouraged it. Did that make it right? 
Let's get closer to home. If you lived 200 years ago in the deep south of America, most white people didn't think there was anything wrong with owning black slaves. It was perfectly legal. You could pretty much do with them what you wanted. You could abuse them in many ways if you wanted to because they were, after all, your property. Did that make it right because everyone else did? Here in Australia, let's get closer to home. Here in Australia, 200 years ago, many people didn't think there was anything wrong with forcing Aboriginal people off their land. And many people didn't even think it was wrong to kill them in order to get their land. 80 years ago in Germany, most people didn't think it was wrong to evict Jews from their homes, send them to concentration camps. The government was killing them. And most people who knew about it thought it was fine and agreed with it. That's what everyone said was okay. 50 years ago in South Africa, most white people didn't think it was wrong to treat some people far worse than themselves based on the colour of their skin. And let's come right now to here, 2021 in Australia. And in our time, many people think there is nothing wrong in killing an unborn baby. And today, most Aussies think that sleeping around, whether with the opposite sex or the same sex, is perfectly okay and is in fact normal. And some programs in school even teach kids to experiment with it. So that leads to the question... Who decides what is right and what is wrong? Is it society? Is it culture? Is it media? Is it whoever has the loudest voice? The Bible's answer is none of these. The Bible's answer is that God decides because God made us. He's the one who made us, so he sets the rules. And as you read through the Bible, it is very specific about what's right and what's wrong. And the list in 1 Corinthians is just one list of some of the things that are wrong. There's other lists as well. So it's not all the sins, it's just some of them. But the reason I've picked this particular list today is I think that it's nice and short, it's concise, and it pretty much covers many of the major sins that we as human beings have grappled with throughout the ages, including our own time. In today's Australian culture, you could even divide these sins into two groups. The sins in verse 9 are those sins which people outside the church often do not recognise as sins and in fact think the opposite are good. But the ones in verse 10, and I say this to our shame, are often sins that the church seems to ignore, are often sins the church seems to stay silent on. And so we need to look at those too. So let's get specific for a few minutes. I know it's uncomfortable. Don't worry, I spent a lot longer preparing this sermon than you have to listen to it. So I've been uncomfortable for longer. The first sin on this list is sexually immoral. This is a general category that covers any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage, including two of the other sins listed on this list, adulterers and men who have sex with men. Adultery is when a married person has sex with someone who's not their spouse. And men who have sex with men, well, that's pretty plain. I don't think I have to explain what that means. Except in the Greek, there's actually two words there that describe both the partners in that act. 
Look, I'm sorry for being so graphic here, but Paul is graphic. He doesn't mince his words. Why? Because he wants us to know plainly and clearly what we should not do, what sin actually is. And you know, he had to be direct. Because you see, in Corinth at that time, any form of sexual activity was considered acceptable. Most men slept with their wives, but they also, most men, slept with prostitutes. And most men also slept with their male slaves who were often teenagers. That was the cultural environment of that time. Those things were normal, acceptable. It's what you did. It was even worse than the sexual morals of our time. But our culture today is becoming more and more like that of the Corinthians. Most Australians today think that it's normal for unmarried people to sleep together and can see nothing wrong with that at all. But the Bible tells us that it is wrong. Most Aussies today think that homosexuality is fine. Homosexuality is fine, that it's good. And, that it's act and, and, and most Australians think that it's actually wrong to tell someone else that it's wrong. And in fact, if I was preaching this message in Victoria today, instead of Tasmania, I think I may have just actually broken the law by what I just said. We have to be careful that as Christians, who are a small minority in this country, that we are not influenced by the morals and ethics of the society around us, when those morals and ethics are the opposite of God's commands. Friends, God is serious about sexual morality. Sex is a great gift from God, but it's only for use within heterosexual marriage. But you know, important as sexual sins are, they are not the only sins on the list. And my fear, brothers and sisters, is that as Christians, we often stop at verse 9, and we don't go to verse 10. We are often silent about the other sins on this list. Let's have a look at those other wrong things. The second sin listed is idolatry. Now, the Greco-Roman world that Paul lived in was riddled with the worship of many false gods and goddesses. Most people believed in a multitude of gods and spiritual beings that, that influenced the course of their daily lives. And we often think that this this particular word does not apply to us because we live in a modern Western society and we don't have that issue. But do we? Who's been to an artsy shop lately or had a good look around a bookshop or a garden shop or looked in people's yards? When I go there, I see statues of Buddhas, belief in horoscopes, lucky charms, astrology, your lucky stars... The New Age, which is really is a repacked version of Hinduism with its many gods. Friends, these are all forms of idolatry and they're rife in our society. And they can even be, some Christians can even be following those things. Many of us have dabbled in those things. But the Bible says they are sin. Let's now get to the sins of verse 10. Thieves, and a little bit later, swindlers refer to similar sins. One just being a more violent way of stealing and the other a more sneaky way of stealing. But either way, they involve taking things that are not yours, defrauding others. It includes things like cheating your customers, charging customers for work you don't actually do, 
taking stuff from the office where you work that's not yours, or not working as long as you wrote down on your timesheet, fiddling your taxes, doing or encouraging cash jobs, anything where you might make some dishonest gain at someone else's expenses, even if that is the government. They too are sins, the wrong thing in God's eyes. As is greed mentioned in the second, as the second sin in verse 10. What is greed? It's wanting what you don't have, what you aren't entitled to, what, more than what you really need. And I think in our Western materialistic culture, greed is a big temptation for us. In fact, economists often tell us that our whole economy is built on us being greedy. It is a fine line between being aspirational and being greedy. And probably, it's hard to lay down where the line is, but probably each of us needs to examine our own hearts on this matter. But we do need to take the seriousness of, of greed for what it is, because Paul does in this verse. Who's finding it easy going through this list? Who's finding it hard? Being honest. I find it hard. I realise I'm guilty of many of these. I'm helpless. I'm lost in my sins. And we haven't even finished the list. There's only two more to go. Not far. Drunkards are also mentioned. And that's people, obviously, who drink too much alcohol. And the last one that we haven't covered yet is slanderers. What is slander? Well, the Greek word means someone who spreads things that are not true, especially about other people. It means someone who puts other people down. It means someone who is abusive, someone who is a bully. We're told not to do that. Do you put people down? Do you put bully people in the workplace, at school? Do you abuse your neighbours? Do you spread untruths about other people? What do you post on Facebook? or other forms of social media. I don't go on Facebook very often, because this is one of the reasons why I don't, but when I do, I often cringe at the things that people post and repost, both Christians as well as non-Christians. Reposting things of dubious truth, posting or reposting things that put other people down, that other people may be offended by. Please, before you put something on Facebook or other social media, or repost something, think twice, maybe even think three or four times. Is it true? Are you really sure it's true? Does it put someone down or a group of people down? Would it unnecessarily offend someone or some group of people? Could it be slander? One of the sins mentioned on this list. And then, of course, there is the public space, politics, the media. As Christians... We're often quick to call out sexual immorality, as we should. But are we also willing to call out abuse, bullying, the slandering of political opponents, the promotion of falsehoods and conspiracy theories? Slander is on this list of sins too. God takes it seriously, and so should we. I've finished that list. Phew, who's relieved? How did you go with that list of sins? You don't have to tell me. You can just think about it in your head. You know it gets harder because that's only just some of the things that are wrong. There's other things mentioned in other parts of the Bible. And also, if we go to Jesus' sermon on the sermon, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it is not just doing those things that makes you a sinner. It's planning to do them as well, even desiring to do them. 
Friends, I hope we've realised the truth of how far short of God's standards we are. What hope do we have? As I read that list, I can see that I have done many of those things on that list. Some of them in action, but a lot more of them in thought and desire. And I'm pretty sure that most of us here, maybe all of us, are in the same boat. We are guilty. Or as the passage in Romans says, we are absolutely powerless. We are totally helpless. We are totally lost in our sins in doing the wrong things. Which is why God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Christ did this for us who are ungodly. And that is why Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 6.11, after he has given this grueling list of sins, and that is what some of you were. Notice the past tense. That is what some of you were. And then to press home the point, he continues, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul describes here the actions of the triune God in the name of Jesus Christ, that is, through what God the Son has done on the cross, and by the power and operation of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, we are restored to God the Father. And we can look forward to eternal life with him. Do I hear anyone say hallelujah? hallelujah. Who's happy about that? Mildly or just a little bit? Or really happy? Who's really happy? Good. But notice, Jesus does not die for our sins just to save us from the consequences of our sin. But he dies for our sins to free us from sin itself so that we stop sinning. So that we no longer are sexually immoral. No longer adulterers, idolaters. No longer adulterers or homosexual. No longer thieving and swindling others. No longer greedy. No longer drinking too much grog. No longer slanderers, bullying and being abusive to others. Not that we're perfect. Not that we're perfect. Other parts of scripture tell us that we will struggle with sin our whole lives here on this earth. And it will not be until the next stage, the next world, when we will have complete victory over sin. But... The victory over sin needs to at least start now. Because the thing is, because Jesus died for our sins, and through the help and power of God's Holy Spirit, we are changing. We are overcoming. Even though from time to time we may falter and stumble, we are not like what we were before. We have the Holy Spirit who works with us so that as we walk with God, we can overcome sin more and more in our lives. Friends, we need to understand that the reason Jesus came to die was to deliver us from the helplessness of sin, of all types of sin. Let us not be deceived. Wrongdoers do not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, let us not be deceived. We don't decide what sin is. The government doesn't decide what sin is. The media doesn't decide. The culture around us doesn't decide. You and I do not decide what right and wrong is. 
God decides. No matter whether the culture around us agrees with us or whether it doesn't. Friends, let us not be deceived. It's not enough to be opposed to only some of the sins there and ignore the other sins. Friends, all of us have been sinners, helpless. But if you have repented of your sin, truly repented, and what that means is to admit your sin, to resolve to change, and then call out to Jesus the Messiah in your helpless, hopeless state, then he does wash you. He does sanctify us, justify us through the cross of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just to save us from the consequences of sin, but to save us from the power of sin, sin itself, from thinking and doing those sins. Sure, we won't be perfect in this life. Total perfection will only be in the next age after Jesus returns. From time to time in this life, we will stumble, we will fall. But when we do, we can cry out to God to forgive us again and to help us to change with the help of the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. But if you're here today and you've never repented of your sins, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you would, but it's not really something that you, is really important in your life. If you've never repented of your sins, that is, you've never turned away from your sins, if you've not acknowledged your helpless state, that you are lost in your sins, that is, lost in your wrongdoing, and realize that on that day, the judgment day, you will be helpless before God's judgment. I want to tell you, you don't need to stay like that. There is hope. There was hope for me all those years ago when I too, when I was 17 years old, realized my helpless state. And I cried out to God and he delivered me. You too can cry out to God. Turn away from your sin and turn towards God. Trust in Jesus and he will save you, deliver you, rescue you from your sins, deliver you from God's judgment so that you can have eternal life with him and he will change your life. If that's you, there will be people available after the service that you can pray with. And Jesus, he will forgive you. Why will he do that? Because that's the reason that he came and died. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ, your Son, the second member of the of person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, for dying for our sins. Lord, help us all to realize how helpless we were. Maybe some of us still are. Help us to realize that we cannot overcome sin on our own, that we need the cross of Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who don't know you, that you would stir in their hearts to realize their helpless states and help them to cry out to you, Lord, to save them from their sin. For those of us who do trust and believe in you, I pray that you'd help us to realize that sin is a thing of the past, to take all these sins seriously and the other ones. And even though we stumble and fall from time to time, that through the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live lives that are victorious over sin, that we can become more and more like you as we walk more and more with you in our lives with you. We ask for these things in your name. Amen.